This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. The University of Dallas is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum and robust graduate and professional programs in business, ministry, education, and the humanities. With campuses in Texas and Italy, the University of Dallas is committed to an education that forms students intellectually, socially, and spiritually for a life well lived. For more information, visit udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, you are uh, sad. You are... You have been sad. You are in mourning. I notice you're wearing a black armband. I notice that you have been moping around the past few days with sort of Peanuts-esque music following you around. You are sad, and I'd like to speak to it, Ed. Why are you sad? Uh, am I? Yes, you have been, I think, maybe more deeply that, than you're willing to let on, maybe more deeply even than you're willing to admit to yourself. But it seems to me that you must have been deeply affected by the death of the person you're mourning. I can't remember the name now. Are you okay? Uh, do you mean Shane McGowan? Yeah, that's right. Shane McGarnacle. You have been sad about that. Who Who is Shane McGarnacle and why are you sad? That's okay. Um, well, first of all, I haven't been depressed about Shane McGowan dying for several days. He only died yesterday. Well, um, you were just carrying around a dark cloud before that. That's uh, what can I say? It's what it's part of what. It's your charisma, perhaps. It's, well, it's part of what speaks to me about Shane McGowan, I guess. Um, no, and if I mean, I'm not sad for him. I, I like many other people, thought he was already dead. I, you know, he's who is this fellow? A, I know you wrote about him in your newsletter today, but he's the lead yeah. singer of a band called the Pogues, and I've never, I don't know that band, and that's bothered you. Well, no, it, at first it didn't bother me. It surprised me because you're a man who likes to affect a certain plastic patty American fenianism. So it shocked <laughs> me that you. <laughs> You hadn't heard of the most famous Irish band in the last I don't want to have to know about, I don't want to have to bother to know about various elements of Irish culture, though, to be able to affect that. You mean like the times when I regard it as convenient to me. That's fine, I guess. Um, no, I mean, he he was a singer. He's I, 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 This isn't my opinion of the matter, because my opinion on this particular matter wouldn't be worth anything, but... Um, people whose opinions do matter on these things would say he's he was the greatest Irish songwriter and arguably poet of his generation. Oh, wow. Okay. You see, no, but this is exactly what's wrong with you as a human being. And this is why <laughs> I've been upset is you're just like the Pope's JD Pope's <laughs> plural Pope's plural meet with Bono who, <laughs> you really, know, I don't actually care for you most too. people you in Ireland. If, you know if Bono actually you. set foot in Ireland, which he can't for tax reasons, because he's also a tax shirker in addition to being a crap musician and an obnoxious human being, if he actually set foot in Dublin, they'd throw him to the bottom of the river. Like that guy is just a pain in the backside. But Shane McGowan was a hero. And more than more importantly, he was heir to an embodiment of an incredible musical tradition. Like you it's not possible as an American to like blues or bluegrass or anything like that and not understand its roots in Gaelic music and Celtic music and Irish music and Shane McGowan. It was the greatest living practitioner of this. I mean, he wasn't a shtick act. He wasn't a pub band. Like this was a guy who was writing music at an incredibly powerful level. I mean, he was he was an incredible writer in terms of poetry. Like he got into 
he's a funny story. He was born in in England. His parents were visiting his aunt, and like he was born on Christmas Day, like on a visit. And he was raised in very rural Ireland in Tipperary until he was I don't know I think he was nine or ten, and then they you know like a lot of people did his parents moved to England to find work or whatever. But he won a scholarship to Westminster School, which is like super posh. It is the you know it's it's the establishment private school in London. <laughs> and he got it because he wrote an essay that like the head, the story goes that the headmaster of Westminster school called Shane McGowan's like grade school headmaster and said, did you write this for this kid? Like, it's not possible to me to believe that a child wrote this essay. Like that's how great a writer he was from the age of 11. Um, and just, I mean, he was, you know, in finest rock tradition. He was an incredibly tortured soul. And he his drug addiction was so bad that I think it was in 2001. It was round about the early 2000s. Sinead O'Connor actually called the cops on him out of concern. It's like, I'm just going to rat him out for having heroin in his apartment and get him arrested. Why is this, so, so where are we going here? Well, you asked me what you asked me who Shane McGowan was. And so I'm telling you, I'm oh, trying to educate you. I'm trying to give you some grounding in a culture that matters. I know that you, in your sort of rarefied, waspy, American liberal bubble, if it's not on NPR, you don't, you know. My liberal bubble? You listen to NPR. You like interpretive dance. (laughs) I don't don't listen to NPR that much anymore because I don't have a commute. You are basically Hillary Clinton, as far as I'm concerned. Two things. I don't have a commute, so I don't listen to NPR because I I I have a home office. Two... Um, I used to listen to This American Life, but the pre and post Dobbs, This American Lives, were so brazenly and nakedly propagandist that it really, I, I, honestly, like I did not expect to be this kind of person who was like, "Well, you don't agree with me, so I'm done with." But it was it, uh, it was the end of This American Life for me, and I've I've missed it in certain ways, but maybe felt more liberated by not li- listening to it. But th- that was it for me with This American Life. I don't know what that is. Is that a game show that they had? No, This American Life with Ira Glass. I don't know who I, I don't know what that is. And I don't know who that okay. is. Do you remember is Ira Glass, the one who has the incredibly raspy, crazy voice that does all the interviews on NPR. <laughs> Rest in peace, Shane McGarnacle. Okay. We have You're a lot. You're telling on yourself we, because people listening to this podcast know who he was. We have a lot that we have to talk about. Um, when I say rest in peace, that, that means what's next. <laughs> Go on then. What do you want to talk about this week? Because I have we no have idea. We serious stuff that we have to talk about. And I want to preface this serious stuff by something that I think is really, really important to say. That I was thinking this morning and that is true and I know it's true for you too. And I think it's important to preface what we're going to talk about with this. And it is this. Ed, I love the church. I love being a son of the church. I love the communion of the church. I love Christ in his church. I am so grateful to have been baptized into the church of Christ and be incorporated a person in it with all the rights and obligations thereupon and um, to have been affected by the sacramental grace, which comes with the sacraments of initiation into the church and to be sustained and nourished and fed by the sacraments, which, uh, which I regularly receive in the life of the church. I love the church. Yes. Catholicism. Yay. Yes. Where are you Catholicism, going with this? Yay. Well, we're going to talk about Raymond Cardinal Burke. And when we do, I think we're going to have to have a sort of tough conversation about the state of affairs. And so it seems to me important to proceed our tough conversation about the state of affairs with an affirmation of our gratitude to be Christians. Uh, okay. I mean, I can talk about Cardinal Burke um, and I can I can affirm my joy at the church and her sacramental life and okay. her truly human and truly divine nature and all of that. I, 
I don't know that saying the words Cardinal Burke make, immediately makes me feel like, <gasps> disclaimer, I do love the church, but okay, sure. The How reason do you I want say that is because we're going to have to have a difficult conversation about car- the decisions around Cardinal Burke and uh, the way that Cardinal Burke has made his way into the headlines this week. And I just think it is helpful for us as a, di- as a discipline for ourselves to affirm our um, Christian discipleship ahead of what what maybe maybe I'll be wrong about this, but what may be a, a difficult conversation because we have to talk about effectively a difficult moment in the life of the church. Okay, I mean, I I all right. My starting point on this would be uh, I have a lot of questions. Start. About, well, tell the people what you're talking about. Well, okay, so well, but this is the thing: is I don't really know. We don't because, know what we're talking about. So because yeah. we know, yeah, I guess the timeline is the best we can do. Um, was it? Monday or Sunday? Uh, I think it was m- Monday that it started it was popping Monday. out around. Yeah, I think it was Monday it started popping off, but I think it was like Sunday afternoon that it first started doing the rounds on some Italian websites that Pope Francis had told a meeting Before of senior... Before it started emerging that, yeah. Yeah. That Pope Francis had told a meeting of senior curial officials that Cardinal Burke, whom he described as my enemy was a source of disunity or a sower of disunity in the church. And to get him, he had kicked him out of his Vatican apartment and stopped him receiving the Cardinal's plate, which is the sort of monthly stipend that Cardinals resident in Rome get. And it amounts to, I think it's just under 5,000 euros a month now. Um, And uh, that got legs. It got picked up by a uh, not a surprising number of secular outlets because they love a good um, conservatives versus liberals court intrigue story coming out of the Vatican. It's about the only, you know, that 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 sort of narrative is about as pre-chewed as is required for most of the Vatican secular press corps to actually get their heads around it. Um, and I mean, if it's a story ever more complicated than that, then they, they try and chew it over until they can get that narrative out of it anyway. So this one came kind of pre-packaged for them. Uh, and, but then sort of follow up that people were doing, trying to confirm exactly what was said, um, exactly what was happening. Contrary stuff started emerging. A lot of people said, well, we've confirmed that it's definitely happening. That Pope Francis has definitely evicted him that from his apartment. That Pope Francis had said that Cardinal Burke would be, have to vacate his Vatican apartment and would lose his Vatican stipend. Yes, and that um, you know he was definitely being kicked out by the Pope, and this was all you know. This was a disciplinary action, and you know all this. Um, and then you had Austin Ivory, of course. There's always Austin Ivory in these things. And well, in the middle of it, we confirmed elements of this, right? We well, we, we confirmed so elements of it, but what well, we confirmed I mean, on Tuesday morning. You, you say what did we confirm? Yeah, I we talked to some sources on Tuesday morning, and um, we were able to confirm that there had been a meeting between the Pope and some dicastery heads, in which the Pope had said that he would employ some, according to our sources, punitive measure or measure, not sort of, I think, a sanction, but a measure meant to be punitive related to Cardinal Burke because Cardinal Burke disrupted the unity of the church, the Holy Father reportedly said, and that that disruption was, um, uh, and, and that as a consequence of that, he would face some measure of punitive sanction or punitive measure related in some way to his apartment slash uh, stipend. That's as much as we confirmed, that that there was a discussion about this. And we confirmed from people with direct knowledge of the thing, but um, but we did not confirm sort of every point by point of the some of the reporting which came before or after it, but um, that there had been some discussion of um, a fiscal 
change for Cardinal Burke and um, that that was meant to be punitive in nature. And it was because Cardinal Burke was apparently or perceived to be um, disruptive to the unity of the church. Right. But it's not, it's still not clear to me. Well, then what from, did Austin Ivory say? Well, Austin Ivory said he emailed the Pope because um, he's the bi- papal a- biographer, Austin Ivory. Yeah. That's I, I hate it when people call it call him that. Like that's not a that's not a status. That's not a court like, office. I understand that that's that, not a sort of court role in the papal court. But he is writing the a person. book about a pope doesn't impart a character. It's not you know you, it's not like priest the ordination. He's not of the papal biographer cast now. No no no. He's, but he is the person whom the Holy Father has chosen effectively to serve as his biographer, and often becomes a sort of unofficial, official, unofficial spokesman for the Roman pontiff or presents himself as such. I think one challenge the Boston Ivory papal biographer is, uh, so to speak, is that it's hard to know when he's representing the Pope and hard to know when he is projecting about what he thinks the Pope has said or thinks. But in this case, he said that he had had a direct conversation with the Pope about this thing. And that Francis had clarified he never called Burke my enemy because he wouldn't do that. Um, But he did say that Cardinal Burke had been a source of disunity in the church and he was kicking him out of his apartment. Um, he would be kicking him out of his apartment. He would and be then, kicking him out of his apartment and applying some canonical Canonical penalty? sanction or penalty. So, and which, I had been thinking about that, and it sounds like you had been too. This notion of Ivory said the Pope said they would be applying some canonical sanction. And, and, and what do you make of that? Uh, very little, because Austin Ivory is not a credible human being. So I have no way of knowing what is Austin's interpretation of what the Pope told him or emailed him. What is Austin's translation? I, who knows? I, as far as I'm concerned, if Pope Francis wants to say something for public consumption and intends it to be received credibly, um, he won't do it for a guy who lives on a goat farm outside of the city. He'll do it through that <laughs> large condemned. press office. You have this connection. I love... <laughs> Let's just what? try to maintain our 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 charitability. As we I'm being, no, I'm not being charitable or uncharitable. I'm being straight with the facts. That's who Austin Ivory is. Is he's his new shtick? Is he's a small holding goat farmer who lives outside of Rome in the Italian countryside somewhere, and wanders in sometimes to the city to sit at the back of the press room and send tweets. As far as I can tell, there is, however, a large, incredibly well funded, some might argue overfunded, dicastery for communications which is the official organ through which the Holy Father can communicate authoritatively and without um, misinterpretation or questions, things that he would like the world to know. So if, if I hear it come out of the Vatican press office, I will say, oh, well, I, you know, unambiguously, this is what I think the Pope wants us to say. Austin Ivory sort of doing a blog post saying, I emailed the Holy Father because I was worried about the way people were interpreting this. That's that's as much a sort of weird Rorschach test of reading as as anything else that's come before, as far as I'm concerned. And I do think that even if you regarded um, Austin Ivory as a sort of credible source in the sense of a person who could be trusted in these sorts of things, um, I think that it is also true. Well, that his he, house is full of Rupnik art, so I don't think he's a credible source he, to be trusted. He with has anyone, said. When you make these references, you have to assume that other people don't live on the internet and may not know what the references are. So, I think everyone knows who Rupnik is. Uh, yes, but they may not know what it means to say that Ivory's house is full of Rupnik art. It means exactly what I said. His house is full Ivory of Rupnik has art. Said that. Have you been there? 
No, he said it. He said it publicly. He said, my my Rupniks are staying on on my wall. Yes, he did say at the time when there was a great deal of- um, Again, you keep accusing me of illusion and spin, and I'm saying, (laughs) no, I'm just just stating facts. He has a house full of Rupnik art because he said my house has Rupnik art in it. I wish you'd flesh them out a little bit so that people who who listen to the show who don't live on Twitter would know what we're talking about. You know what I'm saying? If they know- if they know who Rupnik is, which if they listen to the show, they do. But they might not understand that it's just sort of le- this sort of just tossing out there. His house is full of Rupnik. They might, even if they know who Rupnik is, they might not know what does that mean? Is he a storage facility? Is he? So it's helpful to say when there was a fracas over the Rupnik art. Okay. I, and when all people right, were I can provide more context. Which has fallen out of the news the, cycle. People are no longer talking about right. that for whatever reason. No, I, you're right. I'll provide necessary context. At a time at which it became crystal clear without ambiguity that um, Marco Rupnik, formerly SJ, was a serial groomer and sexual abuser of women religious and had used sacramental and liturgical vessels to assist him in the sexual abuse of religious sisters and used his artistic creation process to abuse these women in the service of, he would say, um, the creation of his quote-unquote sacred artwork Austin Ivory let it be known that he owned several pieces of Rupnik's art and they hung on his walls. And the fact that religious sisters were abused in the course of Rupnik's artistic process bothered him not one whit and they were staying on his walls. Is that sufficient context? Yes, that is sufficient. So when that guy tells me I got an email and here's my recitation, I'm like, well, I, I don't know what to make of this. Who knows? I, yeah, but I would say even if you take the general thing that Ivory is, who's probably going to listen to this show, cut up pieces of it, put it online, it's going to be a whole to-do. I like not having that. But anyway, you have contempt for this person. Even if um, uh, Ivory, one says, is perfectly credible and all of that, um, I don't think he probably knows what canonical sanctions are. And to be honest, I think it is But this possible is what I mean when that, I say that I, I, when you said, what do I think he meant by that? I said, I don't know what he meant by that. I, right. And I think it is, I think it is possible that it's, that, that even the Pope might have used the term canonical sanctions imprecisely because the Pope is not a canonist and, um, and, and went to seminary at a time when canonical training was relatively limited and has been, although a prolific legislator, not demonstrated like himself to have any particular canonical acumen. So I think it's possible, it's entirely possible that the Pope might have used the phrase canonical sanctions, but didn't know what that meant, um, or that Ivory understood it and Ivory himself didn't know what that meant. So that's possible. So anyway, Ivory said that the Pope said that he was going to do some canonical sanctions against Burke, but that he didn't call him his enemy and that he was going to suffer some economic consequences of apartment and, um, and, uh, um, stipend. Is that right? That, yes. But and at the same time, you've had other people reporting and saying that they have sources that have confirmed um, that this is actually just a question of Cardinal Burke's not actually being told, ordered to vacate his Vatican apartment. He's being ordered to pay market rent for his Vatican apartment, and this will effectively amount to the need for him to vacate because Vatican apartments are very nice architecturally, usually very well decorated, um, although at the at the renter's expense. Is usually how it goes in the Holy See, um, and very well, you know, they're, it's prime real estate, and so they command enormous market value if they ever run it. But the thing is, if that's the case, and again, there's there's no clarity on this from anyone, at least that I can find, whether there's a specific action being taken to raise the rent on Cardinal Burke, or if, as the Holy See announced earlier this year, that the entire practice of 
curial officials and cardinals receiving grace and favor apartments or you know peppercorn rents was ending because of the right. cash so I, crunch. Everyone's going to have to pay market right. When I first heard about the Burke thing, when these fir- r- sort of the first reports, which I regarded as rumors, started going around, I assumed that what had happened was that. There had been a meeting of dicastral heads, and because the Pope had made this decision about, um, or the Vatican City Governorate had made this decision that cardinals were going to have to start paying market rate for their rent because the Holy See and or the Apostolic See rather is in an economic crisis, I had assumed that basically there was an announcement that Burke would be among those who would, might be the first to, um, you know, begin to be charged for his apartment or something like that, and that perhaps the Pontiff had made in that context some kind of a. A joke, like a had had attempted to make some kind of a joke, a joke probably in poor taste that Cardinal Burke was his enemy or something like that, and that the story had just spun out of control like a game of telephone or um, a game that I recently played at Thanksgiving with my family, a game of telestrations. So I had assumed that this sort of telephonic or telestration um, thing had happened and it had just sort of spun out of control. But now um, it does not seem likely that that's the case. Um, that, you know, the Pope had just made a joke or something like that, but there had been some intentionality. However, I have been told that in the past couple of days, and I don't know if you have either, that while the Pope announced in March that cardinals were going to have to start paying market rate for their apartment and other people who had apartments of the Holy See, that actually that's been quietly rolled back for a number of dicastery heads and secretaries who have basically said that they wouldn't be able to sustain that or have said that they have some case of hardship, that quietly over the past six months, the plan, the grand plan to begin charging everybody rent has been chipped away at such that there's hardly any of it left. And that has left me wondering if maybe many, many people have been granted exceptions. And what's happening with Cardinal Burke is that he was not granted an exception um, as one sort of possibility. That seems to me to be the most likely possibility. Um, yeah. I mean, we reported at the time that the the rent hike was announced. And as I recall, it was announced in a really weird way, which is it was like literally nailed to a Vatican City bulletin board. Yeah, um, probably. There's probably some. Yeah, it, I mean, like, it was it was it was some crazy cockamamie way it was announced like that. But um, we reported at the time. I mean, they've, the Cardinals' plate collection has already been uh, cut significantly mm-hmm. in recent months. Uh, I think it was a twelve percent cut or something like that. I'd have to look it up for the exact figure, but. Um, I, I remember when the when it was announced at the time that you know we we I think we even talked about it on the show maybe, but the result was the average rent for a Vatican apartment occupied by a cardinal w- at market rate would be far in excess of the average stipend yeah, of a Vatican cardinal like living in the Vatican a month or something like that. Yeah, like that's it's right. just uh-huh. not economically viable and is never going to be. And we yeah. said at the time like this is not. We see where the Pope's going with this. We see where the Holy, the Vatican City State is going with the with this. Where the Secretary for the Economy, you know, is going with this. That they need to maximize what marketable assets they have. They're in a cash crunch. All of that. But this is going to outrage people, and it did outrage a lot of people. Um, and it was going to be a hard sell because some people, some cardinals, and and other um, senior curial officials could do things like you know find a place and you know find a nice. Uh, guest suite or whatever that they could occupy in a national seminary or something in Rome or, or you know, something like that, or a, a study college of some kind, but not all of them would. And that would be a, a, a heck of a thing. Um, and the idea that you could get market rate for a Vatican apartment was, was also kind of, eh, because yeah. there are Vatican apartments and there are Vatican apartments. There are Vatican apartments that are in Rome 
technically speaking, legally speaking, right. but owned by the Vatican. And okay, fine, you can yeah, do that. Yeah, they're extraterritorial. Like, the, yeah. like the Palazzo de Cancelleria, where the apostolic Yeah, seat, that's right. That's, you know, that's in Rome, Ro- the city of Rome proper. The building itself is, I think, in a kind of weird extraterritorial thing. I've been to some apartments in the Palazzo de Cancelleria. I can't remember who it is, whose apartment I've been to who lives there. And if I could remember it, I wouldn't say it on the show. But I have been to the homes of – I have, I have had dinner or two in the homes of curial officials. There. Well, the and reason is, are, is because both the apostolic signature and the Roman road are in that building. That's right. And it's, that so it's right. just and room full of canon lawyers. Room full of canon lawyers. And they are – I mean, you know, the, these are very nice, nice apartments in those – and those are not even as nice as Burke's. And it's not like the Holy See has nice apartments because they're <laughs> investing in them. No, but wait. <laughs> Sorry. It's not like the Holy See has apartment buildings in Rome because they recently had a bunch of cash and decided they'd be a good investment. Rather, these are apartment buildings which you know ha- have long been a part of the sort of Vatican's patrimony. Um, dating back from the time of the Papal States when there were very many more officials, civic and otherwise, and the Holy See was a big landlord and these kinds of things. And the Apostolic See, by the way, is still a big landlord. Yeah, it does still have apartment property. buildings that are a source of income for it that are rented right. out of commercial. Yeah, just, they just ha- didn't recently buy them. You no, know, and they don't tend to take – They don't te- the apartments they rent out tend to be in purpose-built apartment buildings that they own, not in yeah. – prominent dicastery buildings and dicastery such. buildings yeah that's exactly but right. anyway there's i mean there's also the problem of a lot of these apartments are sort of literally and metaphorically behind the vatican walls and you know you, you can't just put that on the open market like oh yeah come at this apartment it's in the palazzo san Ufizio, so it's behind a security cordon in an extraterritorial part of the city and you know Congratulations! You get to have an office above the holy. Op- you get to have an apartment above the holy office of the Inquisition that comes with this. Like you'd have to vet the people. You can't just rent that out to anybody. You can't have, um, you know, wild parties going on up there. Well, there was one cardinal who apparently did do that, but he's, <laughs> and it became kind of a diplomatic incident. But that that he's long retired. He does. He lives in Milan now, so he, that's not a big deal. Um, but in general, the entire idea of we're just going to take. We're going to raise the rates of all of the grace and favor apartments in Vatican City to market rates, and either the cardinals can pay them or they actually can't, so they'll move out and we can rent them out. Like that was never like it was one of those things. Like I see the principle behind this, but in practice, this is going to be a very very hard sell. So it would not shock me at all to learn that basically this was a this is a regulation or a law that was passed, and everybody got a dispensation except Cardinal Burke, and that's sort of what's going on here. Yeah, and the other thing is the cardinals. Um, plate thing that you know, the Pope was going to cut off the his salary. Stipends, yeah. I, maybe he's doing that. I don't know. Um, but it can also be if well, he's we effective. What we thought initially is that he could lose it by virtue of vacating Rome. Well, if you he do left lose it Rome, by virtue of vacating yeah, Rome. Right. Like it's, yeah, right. I could totally see it's this. It's cardinals in Rome. And the reason is because cardinals in Rome assist in the governance of the Roman Curia. So there are cardinals who live in Rome and cardinals who don't live in Rome, all of, you know, who are appointed to various dicasteries. But it's who, which basically share in the work of the dicasteries and 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 review files and get, weigh in and assist and stuff. But it's the ones who live in Rome who do the lion's share of that work because they go to the regular meetings. They don't they don't just go to the very sort of extraordinary meetings that happen every so often. But they go to the regular meetings and they pick up sort of oh I'll help with this one I'll help with this one kind of obligations. Yeah. And so they actually have work to do. And Burke is on three dicasteries, right? And he's a he's, two dicasteries in a court. Yeah, he's an active judge on the apostolic signature, which is something that's really maddening. Right. Which I mean, means he has cases. And, and people have said, is that a full-time job? It would be a full-time job for me. Yeah. It would be a full-time job for you. I don't know if it's a full-time job for Raymond Cardinal Burke, but that's because he's been doing stuff with the Signatura for 
you know, he's the former chief justice of that body. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. yeah, this is something else that like, and, and this is why also I doubt a lot of the coverage that people have been reporting with great confidence about what was it's like, they all said, oh, and you know, Pope Francis removed Cardinal Burke from the apostolic signature years ago. It's like, no, he, no, he didn't. He didn't. He, he didn't renew it. He didn't give him another term as prefect. prefect. Uh, right. And but he, and as a result of that, he went off. off the turner for a while, but in 2017, right. but he, he reappointed as a judge and he has been yeah, since then. Exactly. So it's like, if you don't even that's know exactly the basic right. facts of what curial roles Cardinal Burke has, I don't trust you to report the ins and outs of his financial situation. Well, that pretty much leaves very few reporters. Yeah. <laughs> Subscribe to the pillar. Okay. <laughs> okay. We have to go to commercial and we will be right back. Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by our friends at the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. And what I want to talk about today is the student life at the University of Dallas, because we've talked before about how the University of Dallas is distinguished by its curriculum and by its faculty and by its cool campuses around the world. But um, I, I just I think it's worth talking about some of the elements of sort of student life at UD. They've got 1,500 undergraduate students, another 1,000 graduate students. So this is a school where... Um, you won't where students are not lost in the crowd. It's the place. It's the kind of place where people know each other, and the kind of place that actually becomes, you know, a community of learners. And I don't mean that in a cliche way. I mean that in the humane way that a school is both a faculty of friends and a community of learning. So you've got fifteen hundred undergraduate students, another thousand grad students. The average class has nineteen students in eleven to one student to faculty ratio. Um, and what that means that is that um, these are not students who are learning in gigantic lecture halls from a TA. These are students who are learning from professors who have the opportunity to know professors and to be known by their professors, who have the opportunity to be mentored and informed by their professors, and have the kind of classes which are conducive to discussion and conversation. The University of Dallas is 80% Catholic, and undergraduates are offered 27 majors, 36 concentrations, five pre-professional programs, and a 16, 16 four plus one programs. Those are programs where you can basically get a master, your your bachelor's degree and a master's degree by staying for another year. So um, those are a lot of academic offerings. I that's a great idea. I wish I could have gotten my master's degree and just hanging around for an extra year and doing more. That'd have been fun. I, I'm in favor of that. Why not? Um, yes, but it's also. I mean, we've been to the campus now, obviously, and we are we we. I at least firmly fell in love with it. It's it's a big place. It's like 200 acres. It's outside of the city, but you you can get to the city very quickly. You can get to several really cool honky tonks. Um, I think we got from the airport in like 10, we got there from the airport in like 10 minutes. Something like that. And w I ended up at a line dancing bar one night that was, I mean, no, no more than four minutes from campus in a car. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those, I mean, it's, it's what you want in a college campus. It is outside of the city. It's its own space. It's beautiful. It's, it's a sweeping campus, but it's also right there. It's not isolated somewhere, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, it has, you know, the study abroad program in Rome, I'm now, you know, deeply committed to going to visit because it sounds incredible. This place outside of Rome in Lazio, you know, with a vineyard and, and all of the stuff. So you can actually learn, you know, read the classics in the place where it all happened and everything. It's, it's just such a great idea of the, the living and learning and the, the full human life experience of education. Um, they have seven single gender traditional residence halls for freshmen, as well as, you know, apartment style housing and residence halls for upperclassmen. I mean, the student life, is great there. I mean, the, I, I, so here's the other thing is I know um, kids of college age, nieces, nephews, that sort of thing. And they either go to U Dallas or they have friends who go to U Dallas and they visit them on campus a lot. And I mean, they all say it, it, it is just a truly wonderful community 
to be a part of. And they have, I, I think it's some ridiculous number. They have 50 student organizations and, you know, they have the, you know, the crusaders for life and, and the things that you would expect in a vibrant Catholic um, college, but they have like, they have a swing club. Be honest. You wanted to be a part of a swing club when you were an undergrad, you know, don't, don't shake your head at me. You love swingers. You love that movie. They also have You're wearing um, suspenders right now. You I do love, love that swingers. Movie. They also, UD has, uh, it's division three school, which uh, the cool thing about a division three school is that it's competitive athletics, but um, you two can play. They've got seven men and women uh, and eight women's sports, a competitive men's clubs, rugby team, which is, you know, a, a very cool thing. Intramural and recreational athletic programs. I understand that their intramurals are very, very fun. The campus is home to the Church of Incar- of the Incarnation, which has daily mass and regular confession. When we went there for mass, it was packed with kids and lots of kids were in line for confession. There's campus ministry and focus, giving um, you know all of the spiritual enrichment um, that students are looking for. UD has a doctor on campus, a counseling center to assist students um, you know, with their mental health needs. And you can't say too much about that because taking care of your mental health is hugely important. But let's get to the thing I really want to talk about, Ed, which is the annual Groundhog Day celebration for whatever reason. And I know I used to know the reason, but I don't know now. But for whatever reason, Groundhog's Day is a very important day at the University of Dallas, at which alumni from across the country arrive on campus. Ed and I customarily, and I'll say that meaning just this year, Ed, Michelle, and I customarily show up on campus. There are fun activities. The pillar typically does a sort of live podcast there. I don't know if we're doing one this year, but the pillar typically does a live podcast there. And then there is this really exciting, really great sort of outdoor festival with bands made up of students. And um, I think there's food and there's beer and it's just fun. And it's it's just like, um, it, it, it was just a very, I love the Groundhog Festival because it was just like good, wholesome, enjoyable culture, Catholic culture. And, and it was just fun, you know? So Groundhog to me sort of embodies so much of the UD thing. What I really loved about the Groundhog Festival was you go to a lot of stuff. I you don't go to a lot of stuff. You go to things on university campuses sometimes. And it feels like, okay, this is the thing that the school is putting on for the students. And then you feel like somewhere over here or later is the thing the students are doing for themselves. But there was none of that separation. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, felt yeah. really like this is the this is the thing that the students are are both doing in full cooperation with the school, and that it is it felt like a completely integrated, happy experience. Everyone's having a great time. And what struck me was the number of alumni who came. So Ed, we have been to Groundhog, and I hope that we'll go back to Groundhog. What we have not been to yet, but I hope we will make it to, is the Greek Olympics. So the Greek Olympics constitute the sort of fun day, a sort of fun day at the on the Rome campus of the University of Dallas, where students um, compete in in all sorts of Olympic style games, while the faculty look on from Olympus, I suppose, as the pantheon of Greek gods. The students have this sort of just fun and crazy Greek day right before they go on their 10-day trip to Greece in which they sort of visit um, some of the sort of foundational sites of Western civilization. This seems to me like it would probably be very, uh, very fun, and I hope that we will be invited to be a part of it um, I would uh, assume there are togas involved. I would think so. I mean, if I know one thing about Greek culture, it's that there are togas. Um, There are dances at UD. There's the spring formal. There are concerts, music on the mall. There's quiz bowl, which... I love there's Fall Fest, Battle of the Bands. Thank goodness it's Thursday, which is kind of like monthly theme parties. UD has an annual charity week where students lead activities across campus to raise money for charities. They have this cool day called the Big Event where everybody's involved in a day of service to the local community of Dallas and Irving, started and led by students. There's just so much going on at UD 
Um, and and I really, I'm so glad that UD sponsors our show. I'm so glad that there are partners because the University of Dallas really um, is the premier Catholic liberal arts university in this country. It is. And please do go to udallas.edu slash pillar and, and have a look at some of the fun stuff that's going on. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Do us a favor. Check it out. Okay, Ed, we are back from our commercial break. And uh, and so we have been talking about the apparent um, d- decision of the Roman pontiff to remove the apartment and salary of Raymond Cardinal Burke, um, f- the Roman apartment of Cardinal Burke, or possibly to charge him rent for his apartment and possibly would lose his salary because there are a lot of unknown things here. Look, um, there are a lot of unknowns. Here's the one thing we do know for sure, because everyone seems to agree on it. Everyone we've talked to agrees that it happened and – the Pope has in the strange backdoor way that he apparently has chosen to make these things known, confirmed. There was a meeting of senior curial officials, and he did say something to the effect of, I consider Cardinal Burke to be a source of disunity in the church, and I have done something. Done, I have done or will him. do something. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And, and <laughs> that's, I mean, so here's the thing. And the other thing we know for sure is that as of our recording of this podcast, whatever it is that the Pope has done or will do has not been communicated directly to Cardinal Burke, that to the extent that he knows about this stuff, it's because he, like you, is reading about it at the Pillar and other websites. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, for me, the saddest thing about all of this, I mean, I'm not, I mean, Cardinal Burke is Cardinal Burke, and I'm not worried that he will end up living under a bridge or anything like that. So, you know, whatever ends up happening with his apartment in Rome, that's, you know, that sucks. And it's no fun for anyone to move, especially if you're a man in your 70s. You don't want to have to. If you're 75, I mean, I think we often forget, like, if you're 75, I I remember talking to a bishop once who who had just submitted his resignation and he he was serving in a diocese that was far from the land from whence he had came and far from where his family was and stuff. And I said to him, are you going to go home? And he said, no. He said, you know, my people are here and all that. He said, but also my doctor is here. And I think mm-hmm. that when you're 75, it's easy for us to forget that things like my doctor is here might feel all the more important than they do when you are yeah. um, in the springtime of youth, you know? So it's, it's no, it's no joke to have to move that. And that's terrible. Um, but, but I think for me, the, the first thing that struck me about what we know for sure happened in whatever iteration it did happen is that, you know, for Pope Francis to basically say, yeah, I did something to have to stick it to Cardinal Burke and like sort of said this, in a meeting of curial officials, like it's just an ugly look for the Pope, you know? Yeah, it it, it is not, it does not. It's one thing it if, more, you know, if he's made a decision, itself, yeah. if he's made a decision, he's going to do a thing and he calls Cardinal Burke and he says, all right, this is what's happening. And this is why now pack your bags and get out of the vet or, or whatever it is he wants to say. And then later on tells people, and that's what I did. And that's why. Okay, that's one thing, but to sort of say to a room full of people, yeah, I'm going to take this guy's house and have that be how he finds out, like, it's just a, you know, it's not the, it's not the kind of fraternal pastoral out, you know, embracing out that Francis himself is the most prominent proponent of and says that we should be modeling as a church. It does not seem to be. It's a jerk move is what it comes across as. It it does not seem to be accompaniment or synodality or any of those things that are characteristics of the rhetoric of the Francis pontificate. And so I think a lot of people find themselves somewhat shocked by the cavalier, seemingly cavalier way in which the Pope would have made and announced a decision because it seems to fly in the face of the accompaniment 
rhetoric and language. Now, Cardinal Burke, you said Cardinal Burke is Cardinal Burke, and we should talk about that for a minute, because Cardinal Raymond Burke, I think, is a figure who is um, an important one to understand in the sort of landscape of American Catholicism, right? So a guy who um, is um, a very a very well-educated canonist, sort of well-respected as a technical canonist with a great deal of experience, even in his early, relatively early priesthood of um, canonical service to the church at the Holy See. I think he worked at the Signatura when he was a young priest. Is that right, Ed? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, he worked at the he worked at the signatory when he was a young priest, and then um, worked in diocesan administration, became a bishop, um, and and has you know sort of risen to this position of prominence. But you know, C- Cardinal Burke now I think is looked at by people as in the course of this pontificate. I think there are people who sort of think about Cardinal Burke in terms of. Um, I, I know this is the case because I see people write it. There are people who think of Cardinal Burke as this sort of like figure who is adversarial to the Pope, a sort of one-dimensional caricatured adversary of the Pope who is sort of this arch-conservative villain, um, a throwback to another time and kind of old-fashioned vestments and old-fashioned ideas. And sort of angry Ottoviani part two. Right, exactly. I think there are people who see Cardinal Burke that way. And I, I, I actually, I think I understand why they see Cardinal Burke that way. Cardinal Burke in recent years has been very outspoken about the things which he considers to be problematic in the life of the church and sometimes quite vociferously so and sometimes even um you know probably um problematically so we were ourselves critical of cardinal burke's sort of um publication of the second set of dubia at the time of the synod on synodality the second set of the second dubia at the time of the synod on synodality and we sort of said this seems to be in certain ways more performative than inquisitorial that it's not clear that cardinal burke is asking for something so much as that he's making a point along with the other signatories of that dubia and um you know cardinal burke has surrounded himself with or been at various times in the same place as um on the same platform as or endorsing um ideas and people which are much more it seems to me uh, critical of the pope or critical of the pontificate then he is himself, right? And he has a he has a time sort of been affiliated with this group called TFP, Tradition, Family, and Property. Which Ed, do you know very much about this TFP? I know nothing about it. So this TFP is a kind of um, Brazilian movement that has been criticized as being, you know, it's a sort of Brazilian Catholic movement, but it has been. Criticize, which which exists across South America and to some extent in Europe and the United States, um, but it has been criticized as being um, dysfunctional in various ways and of being um, uh, opposed to the leadership of the church, being kind of a fringe group, being chameleonic, um, it, of exercising sort of backdoor civic control in various cases. It is a group that is in many, many ways very controversial, and I don't know enough about it to say TFP, good or bad. Um, I, my sense is that it's there, you know, very, very many people who have criticisms of it. But Burke has sort of been associated with it, and that has been for some people seen as sort of like a bridge too far. Um, and 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 that may well be true. I think Cardinal Burke is is like not always – intentional or thoughtful about the company that he keeps in the places where he speaks. And and he also, I have seen this where people sort of ask him questions and he grants the premise of the que- or he grants the premise of the question in order to answer it, but in such a way that he ends up sort of being seen to say things that he he probably wouldn't say if he gave them more thought. So I don't think he has been sort of prudent in his um, engagement 
in this diff- in the difficult time of this pontificate for many Catholics. Is that fair to say, Ed? I think it's very fair to say. I think he's often taken advantage of. Um, I think that he he's someone who, and you know, he's made no secret of this, not least through the submission of the various dubia. Um, he's he's got issues with some ways. He's in very which, concerned about the state of the church and the about the state of the church, but also with some some of the things that Pope Francis has written and taught in documents like yeah. Amoris Laetitia and things like that. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting to me. And again, we we had a whole episode where we talked about the second set of the second set of dubia and how it appeared performative, and to me, felt like you know you were never going to get Pope Francis to to tell you what you wanted to hear here. So it seemed, you know somewhat aggressive in that in that way but still i think it's interesting to note that cardinal burke you know in in his deeply felt concerns and criticisms of some of the things that have been said and written during this pontificate that he frames that concern through the mechanism of asking questions not in declarative statements um but nevertheless the things about which he is concerned he's deeply concerned about and he has a tendency to and i think this is true of a lot of people who are good priests and bishops generally, um, they feel it's incumbent on them to answer questions when they are asked. Um, if people present themselves in seeming good faith and say, I'm worried about this, tell me what I should think about this. You're a bishop, you're a cardinal, you're a priest, you, you know, you, bishop, cardinal, priest, tell me, layperson and us lay people here assembled or listening or whatever else, what should we think about X, Y, or Z? And so I think that has led him to at times a sort of reflexive stance of, well, of course I'll answer your questions because that's my job. I'm, you know, you're supposed right. to as a cleric be available to teach and to preach and to help people understand things. And in, in, a, in a sense, the more, you know, difficult the subject, the more urgent it is that I say yes and, you know, be pastorally present to whoever it is who's asking. And I think that's led to him to to do a lot of media spots and stuff that I, I, I think he would have been better advised advise not to do. Yeah, that's right. But I don't think that Cardinal Burke has had the same profile as, say, uh, Bishop Strickland, right? Bishop Strickland no, has he, over the Cardinal past few years, Bur- like in social media, sort of talked about, I will re- under- resist the Pope's sort of agenda of undermining the positive faith and things like that. Burke has been much more sort of um, aimed, at least I think, at being when he is um, aiming himself at offering sort of um, concrete theological criticism of the things that he sees or believes are problematic. And, and right. um, Well, that's uh, a key difference yeah. between Cardinal Burke and the Bishop of Strickland is um, Strickland lives online, like the like the yeah. within the first two hours of Rome announcing he had been removed as Bishop of Tyler, he changed his Twitter handle. Like that, and then he launched the YouTube channel, and yeah, he, he like, revised it. I don't everything. Th- I think if you ask an- Cardinal Burke what YouTube was, he wouldn't know. You know, he's one of those guys <laughs> who sits at the back of the conference and is like, "Excuse me, Bishop Barron, what's a Reddit?" He you doesn't know, go to the conference, but yeah. No, um, I know, but you know yeah. what I mean. I'm saying he's of that yeah. generation. It's like I have no idea what the onlines are. What are you? What do you? Right, what, what is a exactly, TikTok? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, I guess it's America Online. I don't. I don't know. You know. Um. So Burke is not of that same sort of online temperament. Um. But he has. Well, but sort no, of you say it's out. not the same online temperament. But I think this also feeds into what appears to me to be a lack of prudence sometimes and what you the company he keeps and the sort of people that he affiliates himself with. Whereas for you and I, if someone invites you to speak at something, I'm saying you, not me, because you do the speaking engagements and I'm happy that way. Um, 
But if someone invites you to speak and you haven't heard of them before, the thing you do is Google them. And then you Google the right. board members. And then you Google what the, the board, what else the board members do. And you're like, well, who are and these then people? I, and then just because I'm me and I think a lot of people have then this. Then you read their um, mortgage loan applications. And then you, I Zillow you, you, their houses. At the very least, I Zillow their houses. But everybody Zillows. When you go to a house, you Zillow it first, right? Everybody does that. No, I, I've told you before. My Zillow account is basically... Places I would like to run away to, but can't. But you Zillow add the addresses where you're going, right? To see what they pay for their house and these no. kinds of things. Okay. It's grotesque. Well, neither does Cardinal Burke, I think. My my point is that it would I I don't think Cardinal Burke would know how to do that, to how to right. Google a thing, let right. alone reflexively do a deep dive on whoever's inviting him to speak wherever they're inviting him to speak. And so I think that has led to some very poor decisions. Um in a certain that, way, I think it's fair to say that he is a person um, of a generation, from, yeah, from it, but but from and in another time, in a certain way, who who has part of I think his difficulty has been sort of running up against the way in which uh, media culture and online culture can be. You know, Francis talks about extractive capitalism, but I think there's also ex- something of extractive content mining, where there's a kind of online media culture which is happy to sort of suck from people especially those who are unwitting or 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 unaware sort of the right kinds of sound bites and uh, you know damages be damned and it's um, called clickbait yes yeah right right that's a whole thing in itself yeah but this thing that has happened or that's purports to have happened or whatever you know i think it also has to be said and i i think we've sort of focused on cardinal burke as imprudent but it also has to be said that cardinal burke has long been a figure who 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 has led from his conviction about the notion that the bishop should govern strongly and sternly he has been the sort of, he was the sort of diocesan bishop who was not afraid to like declare the excommunication of people who he believed had incurred in the excommunication and he got into a fracas when he was archbishop of St. Louis over a church that where there was a sort of lay trusteeism and so he declared the church to be in schism he takes these sort of moves that are atypical among the American Episcopate. And so he's always sort of stood out. But it's also the case that, um, and he has this formal sort of style where, you know, it's your eminence and he, he, he is not uncomfortable with people sort of kissing his ring and, and, and um, taking up this sort of customary and traditional sort of dispositions towards a cardinal. And I think that Burke has this sense that those are things that, that the, the trappings of his office are sacramentals by which people are able to express something about their faith or experience something about their faith in a tangible way. I, I mean, and I think that's a customary and traditional way of looking at the trappings of ecclesiastical office as well. I, and I think it's not unreasonable. And it's, by the way, it doesn't skew liberal and conservative necessarily either. I mean, Cardinal Pierre, the apostolic nuncio, was offering his ring to people to kiss at the USCCB meeting in, in Baltimore. In Bal- right, exactly. Who does not agree with Burke probably about very many things. But I think there is this sense that some bishops sort of shy away from now or say, oh, that's old fashioned. But the truth is the trappings of office are are sacramentals and are meant to strengthen and buoy up the faith and to allow a person to express their devotion. Right. It's, it's like people. the army. You don't salute the man. You salute the rank. You, you right. know, when you're, when you make some sort of act of, um, obedience or deference to a cardinal you aren't saying oh this guy is you know he's a very holy man because he's a cardinal you're saying no this is this is a gesture of my that's that shows my relationship to the hierarchical church of which i'm part and with which in with which i am in communion right okay so burke is also i think it's important to understand as i think i said this sort of what has been a very important 
person in the sort of world of canonical scholarship who has published, I think, some significant scholarly work in canon law, and then who also as prefect of the apostolic signatura, like established a kind of corpus of the practice of the church and the application of the law, which is very important. So he's, Yeah, I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, what's a big area of his jurisprudence, if I'm remembering correctly, is um, appeals from um, Catholics and dioceses in the United States against the closure of their parish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a person who I think we have tried to paint a sort of multifaceted picture. This is a multifaceted person. He's a real not life human being. Right, exactly. Not the sort of caricatured monolith that is often presented. If the Pope has done this thing where he has said Burke is a, my, I oppose Burke, and again, Ed and I have conceded that Burke has probably done some um, imprudent things or has done some imprudent things, but it is it is nevertheless um, for me, as I sort of look at that totality of the package, quite, I think, a, a helpful sort of snapshot of the state of ecclesiastical affairs to see that the way that the Pope has sort of seemingly dealt with this problem is not to sort of write to Cardinal Burke and say, I object to these sort of theological things or to, um, you know, attempt to sort of um, meet with Cardinal Burke and talk through these things or something like that. But just this measure of um, I'm mad at him and QED, he can't have his apartment (sighs) seems like, um, a helpful snapshot of the degree to which many of the ordinary mechanisms for ecclesiastical collaboration at the level of the church's highest leaders have broken down, the degree to which the ordinary mechanisms of sort of discipline and filial communion um, have broken down and, and fraternal communion among bishops and cardinals have broken down, and the degree to which, you know, morale for many clerical leaders in the church right now has declined. I I think it is a helpful snapshot. This person has been critical of the Pope, and the Pope has responded by apparently taking away his home. And the Pope can do that. He has the authority to do that. But the choice, which I think strikes many people as being uncharitable and um, punitive, not in a sense of corrective, um, vindictive perhaps is a better way to say, which I think has struck many people as being vindictive, probably helps to encapsulate the state of affairs in the tr- um, in terms of the, the, the sort of state of fraternity and unity among the church's leadership. There's a set of voices that says, yeah, but how long does the Pope have to put up with Cardinal Burke? He's been critical, 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 critical. Cardinal Burke has been critical, critical, but the notion that this person has been critical, 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 critical. Therefore, what well, we should expect the Pope to take away his home when he's 75, I mean, just strikes me as um, being a sort of disordered understanding of the purpose of the primacy of the Pope and the immediacy with which he is able to exercise ecclesiastical governance. If there is a crisis of unity in the life of the church right now, this apparent move seems to me to exemplify it. Okay. That's one that's one way of looking at it. How do you look at it? Um I mean what I said before, which is for me my my immediate reaction is the the distastefulness of it. Um, you know, you you expect from the Pope not just the sort of fraternal charity, um, 
uh, of not sort of you know announcing this in a in a sort of caddy meeting with curial officials with a sort of you know got him um, before you tell the guy himself. I mean, that just strikes me as it's just a brute of figura, um, no matter yeah. who you are. But you know, again, I'm not saying the Pope has to grin and bear the you know the many outrages of Raymond Burke if that's how he sees it and that's how he feels about it. I don't think he does. But I mean, it's just quite apart from not modeling the the sort of pastoral solicitude and fraternal charity, which he, for example, extends regularly to Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who's, you know, facing a seven-year prison stretch for stealing from the Holy See. Um, it, it just strikes me as a as a mean way to behave at a personal level. I, yeah, I and, don't and know also- that I feel the same as you about the idea that, you know, taking away his home and, and all of this stuff and, you know, how, why can't, you know, critical, 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 and how long should you put up? Well, you know, you should just put up. I, like, I don't know. I, I think Francis has definitely broken the mold of how popes behave and how the College of Cardinals is shaped and how the Curia runs. And I don't know to what extent there's any going back that it was absolutely the pattern of Paul the sixth. I mean, JP one doesn't really factor JP two and Benedict the 16th that you promote and consult and keep around you the bishops and cardinals that you, that hate you as much as is like you, that there's a place for everyone at the table, that you have the dissenting voices right there that, you know, Benedict the 16th had um, Walter Casper right there. I mean, it's a weird example because Walter Casper is now considered a trad <laughs> in, right, in, in, right, in this right. in, in, 10 years ago, he was the bleeding edge. You know, when Francis was elected, Walter Casper was the bleeding edge of the, of the German liberal school. Now he's, you know, on the conservative edge, but that's just how the pendulum swings anyway. Yeah. But um, Pope Francis is, has made it increasingly clear that he's not a, there's a seat for everyone at the table. It's my friends only. And <laughs> that's right. You know, you said it's his prerogative, and I agree. It absolutely is his prerogative. I don't know that I have strong feelings one way or the other. Like I, I've never necessarily agreed with the idea that the the Petrine office demands a diverse base of thought in the College of Cardinals. Um, there are a lot of cardinals that I think should never have been made priests, let alone cardinals <laughs> yeah, under JP Dew and Benedict. You don't want is vacillation. What you don't want is sharp vacillation in every pontificate. What I think is bad for the church is sort of sharp vacillation. Look, we are in the middle of some significant hundred year old theological debates right now. And I compa- don't those, the, I he, have you ever spun a spinning top? Yeah. You say you don't want a lot of vacillation. I think it's inevitable because when a spinning top slows down it gets erratic and more violent and it swabbles before it stops. And yes, we're in the middle of all of these generational theological debates, debates about ecclesiology that were going on before the second Vatican council during it and after it. But I think the wobbles are getting more violent because it's about to stop. The demographics only go one way on this. And I do think there's going to be a, a, a swing in the other direction. I don't think I don't subscribe to the idea that necessarily the Pope after Francis is going to be, you know, Cardinal Sarah or somewhere like that. I don't think that's true. I think we're as likely to get a Cardinal Zupi. No, I think we're I else. think we're going to get a Francis-esque figure to be the next. Yeah, I think it's very possible. No, but no, no, no I, I, that's not true. I think we're going to get a figure from Francis's theological school to be the next Pope. That's very possible. Um, but I, I think it, looking. Um, through the wider angle lens of through which the church thinks, I think we're, we've moved into a period of 
a hundred years where there are violent wobbles before a, a final settled resolution where we put what were the sort of theological debates of the 20th century and will be the theological debates of much of the 21st century um, where they will be settled. And I think they'll be settled by demographics. But that's the point that I'm making. In the course of that settling, there are choices that a pope can make in order to provide a certain kind of stability to dampen the wobbling of the top. And those choices have to do with sort of allowing for the reality that we are in the middle of a broad theological debate, that theological debate probably will be resolved by time. Although I think, I'll come back to that, but in the meantime, I think there are ways in which one can say, and in order to ensure that the that division from the ch- within the church, theological and sort of practical and worldview division within the church, is not so amplified as to become, um, you know, deep and perhaps unresolvable rifts. It's better to sort of um, ensure some theological diversity among the College of Cardinals, so that folks don't feel like they've been completely isolated or marginalized or dismissed sort of punitively with wild vacillation between popes who have different theological schools. I think some stability there, it's the same as a pastor who's a diocesan bishop who says, look, my diocese is going in a direction. God has called me to be the teacher in my diocese and my diocese is going in a direction. But I recognize that there are Catholics, people who practice the faith who don't agree with me. And I recognize that in my diocese, there are parishes that are not quite where I would like them to be, but are places that sort of catch people who might otherwise exit the church. And I, and that is a part of the course of development and renewal is that things, you know, that may not all move at the same pace. That strikes me as being sort of pastorally prudent. So there are ways in which I think the Pope who is the principle of unity and the Pope is the principle of unity by clarifying. He principally assures unity by providing clarity of doctrine, but nevertheless, because he also has a role and an expanded role actually in the last hundred years in setting sort of the tone of the church's leadership class, I think he has to do so in such a way that does all that it can to ensure that like you don't have this wild vacillation between different factions of Catholics depending on which one of them happens to be able to get somebody through a conclave. We're going to potentially disagree on that. I I don't <laughs> Let's say more. I, I well the idea that you need to guard against sort of wild swings in the conclave, I don't think is borne out by the last century. That the only reason you have arguably what is happening now is because you seeded the conclave or the College of Cardinals, I should say, with this diversity of viewpoints. So I would argue an irreconcilable diversity of viewpoints. And that's the fault of Benedict and JP2. That if Benedict and JP two appointed cardinals with the mind of Pope Francis, or, or I should say, with the in the way that Pope Francis makes his appointments, then we wouldn't have any swings at all. That it is the it, it's saying that you know you have to have this sort of balancing act as we we shake these things out. I I don't agree that the College of Cardinals is a is an expression of diversity and um, you know a sort of you know great melting pot of or salad bowl of all the different flavors of Catholicism that's not its function the function of the College of Cardinals is to assist the Roman Pontiff in the governance of the Universal Church um, I, I don't I don't need to see my viewpoint reflected in the College of Cardinals for it to be serving its purpose uh, I think it's again I think it's extremely inelegant to see it being ironed out this way and I think that Francis has definitely has made a clear departure from how the College of Cardinals has been used by previous popes, I don't know if there's any going back, um, and I don't know if 
if there is going back and the next pope tries to you know sort of revert to how they used to make and relate to cardinals how that will shake out after what we've seen or if this is just the new thing and if we will get more of these swings um but yeah i don't know that i agree but what i will say is this i i find it extraordinary and it and it makes me kind of angry and this is where i think um you know all of this stuff about cardinal burke and what pope francis has done and said um that really i think is is kind of outrageous really is that the quote he seems to be standing by is not that cardinal burke is my enemy he says apparently that he never said that but he has said that cardinal burke has been a source of disunity in the church and that that's why he's taking this step he's doing it for the good of church unity he's doing it for the good of unity the idea that you need to kick a 75-year-old cardinal out of his apartment to safeguard yeah. the unity of the church and the German bishops are literally blowing their noses with Vatican order after Vatican order after Vatican order, including letters from Pope Francis that say, this permanent synodal decision-making body you want to create as a supranational body for the church in Germany is forbidden by the apostolic see, and they're doing it anyway. Like That is a threat to church unity. Pope Francis has said they are steering themselves away from the from unity with the universal church. He's written that in his own hand in a letter that he sent out and authorized to be made public. Like there is a visible sign against the unity of the church going on right now, and it's being orchestrated by two thirds of a bishops' conference of a major Catholic country. And yet he's not taken a single coercive or disciplinary measure against any of them. And the idea that oh no, Cardinal Burke is the threat to church unity right now. Well, you've got all of these German bishops charging up and down, basically denying the sacramental nature of the priesthood, denying the the reality of marriage as the church has always taught it and as natural law holds it. All, you know, just refuting wholesale the the idea that any part of church doctrine is not up for grabs or debate at any given moment. That's not a thing. And, and more to the point, directly challenging the authority of the apostolic see. The Holy See says, stop, they don't stop. The Holy See says, no more synodal way, you wait for our synod. Nope, we're going to do it anyway. No, no follow-up. The Holy See says, you can't have this permanent committee. Well, we're setting up the committee to set up the committee anyway. What are you going to do? Right, yeah, it's right. a, mm-hmm. like that is, the, that is a direct challenge to the authority of the apostolic see. It is doing, in the words of Pope Francis's own legislation, Come in a Madre Morivoli, it is doing material spiritual harm to the community of these bishops' dioceses. And he's not doing anything. So the idea that Cardinal Burke has to be turfed out of his apartment and stiffed for his stipend as a service to unity in the church, and the German bishops can just do everything they're doing, and that's not a problem. I mean, that's it's a bad joke to be expected to believe that. Like, let's be absolutely clear. Pope Francis is turfing Cardinal Burke out of his apartment in whatever way mechanism it is, and he said that he's doing it in whatever words he chose to use, but he's doing it because he doesn't like the guy. And mm-hmm. he's the Pope. He can do that. I think it's an, I think it's a petty and ugly way for the successor to the Prince of the Apostles to behave, but he can do that. And I, it doesn't. it's not going to keep me up at night that the Pope would stoop to do that. But it really, really vexes me that he invokes the principle of unity in the church as a justification for it while a genuine threat to the unity of the church is proceeding in full view that that seems to me to be i i don't i don't really know what word to put on it yeah there's not much more i can say there yeah edward 
Would you like to play a game? <laughs> sure. What game, what game does one play to follow this conversation? We have been talking about Cardinal Burke, and so, Ed, I would propose that we play a game that I would like to call Everybody Loves Raymond. I see what you did there. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> okay, I don't know how amazing it's going to be, but it is the game that we're going to play. It's called Everybody Loves Raymond because we're talking about Raymond Cardinal Burke, and I suppose what we should say is nearly everybody seems to love Raymond. But we are going to play a special Raymond-themed version of um, a game that we like very much called Good, Better, Best, or maybe you call it – what do you call it? It's called Greater or Lesser. I don't call it Greater that. That's the name of the game because I invented it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So good, better. the way Good, Better, Best works is that I will give you three Raymonds and you will sort of rank them for me in your order of preference, if that, if that seems – In the order of their greatness. We'll start with a holy round of Raymonds. All right. Um, Ed Raymond of Penyafort. St. Raymond Nanatus and St. Raymond of Fitero. St. Raymond of Profiterole, did you say? No, St. Raymond of Fitero, Ed, uh, was a monk abbot and he was founder of the Order of Calatrava. He was uh, became a canon of the Cathedral of Terrazona sometime in the early 1100s. He be- then became a, con- a Cistercian. Uh, he founded a monastery and similar such things. He was okay. Uh, well, I can do this one no problem. Uh, Raymond of Penyafor, greater than Raymond Profiterole that you just said, um, greater than Raymond Nanatus. Okay, that's great. And, uh, would you would you like a rationale for that? Sure. Well, Raymond of Penyafor, patron saint of canon lawyers, obviously. Um, Raymond of Profiterole or whatever it was you just said you mentioned he was from Calatrava. Calatrava is the is the model of a particularly nice and elegant watch, the Patek Philippe Calatrava. Um and Raymond Donatus, I know nothing about. So, okay, that's totally totally fair. Okay, are you ready? Yes. Some aristocratic Raymonds. Mm-hmm. Raymond the First, Count of Toulouse. Raymond of Potier, Prince of Antioch. Or I don't know. Raymond the Seventh, Count of Toulouse. You've given. Did you say the second one was Raymond of Poitiers? Yes. You give me three Frenchmen to choose from. <laughs> I have indeed, and I did there's, it on purpose. There's no. I mean, I don't know who who lost the most battles. <laughs> Just rank them. You said one was Prince of Antioch. I did. Uh, was he the Raymond of Poitiers? Raymond of Poitiers, yeah. Well, then I'm going to say Raymond of Poitiers, Prince of Antioch, because that's a cool title, um, greater than Raymond the... Th- and his father was William the Troubadour. The Troubadour? Yeah, William the Ninth. He was... Of Aquitaine. He, was, he just sort of wandered around playing songs and juggling? No, actually, I don't know why they call him William the Troubadour, because basically he was a sword-wielding crusader who kicked some serious... But did he I don't sing know while he did? <laughs> I, he must have. I don't he must know. He must have. Um... Uh, you know, I, wouldn't it be funny if that actually is the case? Like he was a, you know, an insane berserker, um, crusader <laughs> night by day, but like, you know, everyone's got the boss who like thinks they've got a talent that makes, you know, everyone yeah. has that boss was like, you know, oh no, um, guys after a hard days, you know, laying siege to sleep, but you know, like I'm going to bust out a guitar and play some James Taylor songs. It's like, oh, oh no, boss, before. please don't. Like, never said. Yeah, exactly. That, that and everyone's kind of like, oh God, he's going to make us listen to this again. Is it just, just, you know, come on. <laughs> It's Christmas bonus time. We need this, you know, just, just, just humor him. Um, okay. Raymond of Poitiers, greater sign. Raymond the first, greater sign the other Raymond, because the Raymond the first is obviously greater than successive Raymonds. His ancestor, yeah. or his predecessor, rather. Yeah. Totally valid, totally valid, totally valid. Okay, are you ready for another one? Yes, please. 
These are some American Raymonds. Raymond Teller. You know who Raymond Teller is? Is he from Penn and Teller? He is from Penn and Teller. All right. Which one is he? Is he the one that doesn't talk or is he the one that does talk? Uh, Raymond Teller is the one who does not speak. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Raymond Teller, Mm -hmm. Ray Romano, stand-up comedian and sitcom star, or Ray Bradbury, he of the Golden Apples of the Sun. Sorry, could I have more information on Ray Bradbury, he of the Golden Apples of the Sun? You don't know who Ray Bradbury is? No. But I would like to know. He's one of the 20th century's greatest science fiction writers ever. He wrote Fahrenheit 451, Martian Oh, Chronicle, oh, 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 okay, yes, fine, sorry, yes. All right, um, him number one, Fahrenheit 451, good, good. I like, actually, I have never read the book. Ironically, I've seen the movie, but I haven't read the book. Um, what would be ironic is if you had burned the book. Well, that would be ironic, um, but a little too on the nose. I um, So, okay, yeah. Ray Bradbury, greater sign. Um, who was the first option? Oh, Raymond Teller. Of Raymond Penn Teller. Teller. Okay. Okay. So um, uh, Fahrenheit 451, greater than Vegas magician who doesn't talk, greater than unfunny stand-up comic with the absolutely beige sitcom. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Ray Charles. Do I need to explain who Ray Charles is? No. <laughs> okay. Ray Gillen. Do I need to explain to you who Ray Gillen is? Maybe. Ray Gillen was a rock singer who had a band called the Badlands, but he was also in Black Sabbath for a little while. Ah, okay. All right. He died. I would imagine. <laughs> I suppose that's fair. Uh, or uh, Usher Raymond the Fourth. Is that Usher as commonly known? That is uh, commonly known as Usher. Okay. Ray Charles, obviously, first place. Uh, greater sign, Usher. I mean, we're of a generation. We can all admit that there was there there was some overplaying of Usher songs in the in the in in the social venues of our youth. So, yep. special place in the heart for that. Um, I can't say I ever bought an album of Usher's myself, but you know, if the one with the phone ringing thing comes on, I will I will feel nostalgic for my youth. Um, greater than called, you don't have to call. Pardon? I think it was called you don't have to call. Okay. Um, greater than the guy in Black Sabbath, because, you know, don't don't cuss the Sabbath. <laughs> well, fair enough, Ed. You've done very, very well. Um, <laughs> in this completely arbitrary game in which there were no right or wrong answers. This completes uh, this completes our uh, our game of Everybody Loves Raymond, and uh, it was great to play with you. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to us by the University of Dallas, um, America's premier Catholic liberal arts university. The University of Dallas is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum and robust graduate and professional programs in business, ministry, education, and the humanities. With campuses in Texas and Italy, the University of Dallas is committed to an education that forms students intellectually, socially, and spiritually for a life well lived. For more information, check it out at udallas.edu slash pillar. Now, Ed, why don't you close out the show right now? The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, an Ed and JD production. Our executive producer is the incredible and incomparable Kate Oliveira. And I don't remember what else JD says at this point, but um, we'll see you next week.